tell who might be stowed away Shivering there while the boxes sway Who might jump before the light of day You can't tell There's a night train Rolling by night train Rolling by night train Good morning, good morning, good morning, sweet, beautiful Texas and beyond. There's a night train rolling by that's the mystic arrows kicking things off for us here on dallas safari club's lone star outdoor show brought to you by lone star beer and hoff power players i'm your host cable smith and there is no place i'd rather be than talking hunting fishing and the great outdoors and all that implies with you fine folks today thanks so much for being here and uh, at this point you guys and gals know what to do by now pull up that stool a little closer to the old campfire Pour yourself another cup of coffee out of that beat-up old thermos, the one with mud caked on it from duck season 2014, uh, if it's like mine anyway. Hey, you might have mud on there from 2008. I don't know. I've never cleaned the damn thing. Uh, that that burnt coffee taste, it just, uh, I think it adds character. Uh, so, anyway, uh, maybe you put a little bit of uh, granddaddy's old cough syrup in there. Maybe you don't, but either way, uh, pour yourself another cup because we have a lot to get into today as uh, we'll get the ball rolling with some urban deer hunting discussion. I mean, the stats are staggering. Over 200 people are killed every year. Over 13,000 folks are seriously injured. And uh, over 1.5 million deer are killed annually across the country by vehicles. I mean, we've got a serious problem, and uh, a lot of that comes in urban areas where we've seen these epidemics of just whitetail explosion uh, as far as their population goes and there's different reasons for that and we're going to get into those reasons and possible solutions with our Texas Parks and Wildlife whitetail program leader Alan Kane. He'll join us and we'll also take a look at some of the measures other states have implemented that maybe Texas uh, could learn from. So we'll get into that here in just a second. Then uh, we will get into a little trout fishing discussion with longtime fly fishing guide Peter Breeden from the Beaver's Bend Fly Shop up there on the lower Mountain Fork in southeastern Oklahoma. Just a two-hour drive from the Dallas-Fort Worth area. It's uh, truly an amazing trout stream. And we'll explain exactly how uh, such a warm-weather location can remain a viable trout stream and actually have trout reproduce naturally within its waters. Uh, we're also going to give away a fly fishing trip and we'll tell you how you could win that uh, awesome experience. And you'll be joining me, uh, so I don't know how awesome it is or isn't. Uh, but one of you, myself and Peter, are going to have a hell of a good time doing a little fly fishing coming up here very soon. So anyway, some uh, fly fishing talk coming at you here today. And then we will wrap up today's broadcast by spending a couple segments on a topic that uh, I, I'm completely fascinated by, this little resilient mini jaguar-looking cat known as the ocelot. Y'all probably are familiar with them. Uh, but there is a population that has just been holding on for dear life in South Texas. It's the only population in the United States down there in the brush country on the Laguna Atascosa wildlife refuge and we're going to have biologist hillary swartz who oversees wildlife conservation and restoration down there join us uh, there's some exciting news coming out 
couple weeks ago regarding a newborn ocelot kitten. Uh, and it was the first time this had happened in 20 years as far as uh, folks actually finding the den, being able to put their hands on the kitten, take some measurements, all this other kind of cool uh, research-related stuff. Hillary's going to talk about that as well as the overall numbers as far as the population is concerned and whether it's trending upwards or down. And so uh, I'm certainly excited. From a, a conservation standpoint, it's something that I think we're all passionate about. Not ocelots, um, but, you know, name the species. Whatever really sparks your interest. Uh, as hunters and anglers, I think we, we care about all species across the board. Some are obviously more near and dear to our hearts than others, and that's fine. Uh, but this ocelot, which is very closely related to the bobcat, uh, it doesn't seem to do well around people. You know, we've got bobcats coming out of our ears all over North America in both, you know, urban and completely wild remote settings. So uh, why hasn't the ocelot been able to adapt like that? So anyway, cool stuff coming up with Hillary Schwartz at the bottom of the hour. That's what's on the docket for today. It's going to be a good one. We'll be all over the place, and uh, I'm certainly looking forward to it. A couple other things to mention. Let's do a Lone Star Ag Credit giveaway. I've got a Lone Star Ag Credit camo cap, and we'll throw in a Lone Star beer camo koozie and a Lone Star Outdoor Show sticker. That's a lot of Lone Star coming at you, uh, but we'll do those three things. How about the third person to text in the word Ocelot? That's right, Ocelot, to 214-289-7807. Third person to text in Ocelot will send you the uh, Lone Star, well, let's just call it the Lone Star package <laughs> uh, as today's giveaway prize. And then uh, don't forget that our uh, January Photo of the Month contest is going on right now, but I'm not going to tell you what the prize is. We're, we're going to get into that uh, in great detail coming up here in just a little bit. Uh, so... Let's buckle up. We've got a lot to get into, and we'll get the ball rolling with some urban deer and possibly deer hunting discussion up next right here on DSC's Lone Star Outdoors show. Lock and loading, come and come in, decoys buzzing, barrels smoking, doing their thing. Now we'll do ours. I'm Craig Boddington. I'd like to invite you to become a member of Dallas Safari Club, one of the world's leading hunting and conservation organizations. As a member, you'll receive Game Trails Magazine, a monthly newsletter, and invitations to our monthly meetings and special activities. Join Dallas Safari Club, an international organization based in Dallas, supporting hunting and conservation worldwide. For more information, call 800-9-GO-HUNT or visit our website at www.biggame.org. Howdy folks, I'm Lee Hoffbear for Hoffbear's Outdoor Superstore in Gulfway, Texas. I hope you're enjoying the Lone Star Outdoor Show. We've been a title sponsor for a number of years now, and we're proud to be a part of it. I'd also like to thank you for making Hoffbear's once again the number one Polaris dealer in Texas. Please keep buying your Polaris products from us. Send us your friends, your neighbors, all your hunting buddies, and I promise we'll keep giving the best deals on a brand new Polaris in all of Texas. Whether you're looking for a Polaris for work or play, whether you need a regular Ranger or maybe a Ranger Crew, an RZR, they've got an all-new Ace 
race that you need to come test drive. We've also got four-wheelers from a youth model all the way up to the all-new Sportsman 1000. For your Polaris headquarters, Hoff Powers Outdoor Superstore in Gulfway, Texas is who you need to see all or get on the web and contact today. You can check us out at hpolaris.com. That's H's in Hoff Power, polaris.com. Or you can come see us at Highway 84 West in Gulfway, Texas. And folks, Hoff Powers has been in Central Texas for over 50 years now, and we couldn't have stuck around this long if we were steering you wrong. Put a thousand miles on my motor I broke down in Bowling Green To find a girl who thinks just like you I gotta burn some gasoline There's a little Ray Wiley Hubbard bringing us back on DSC's Lone Star Outdoors show. Cable Smith here with you. Thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, thanks to our presenting sponsors, Lone Star Beer and Hoff Power Polaris. Man, uh, I can't believe the deer season has pretty much come and gone. Uh, unless you're down in the south zone, which, of course, they've still got this weekend to get that big late-season buck on the ground. But everyone else is pretty much done. Uh, now, that's with the caveat, of course, <laughs> that you're not an MLD property. Uh, because if you are, well, you can still rifle hunt through a lot of February. And I'll be going down to the Stillwaters Ranch next weekend. Uh, to take advantage of the MLD program. Got one last deer hunt on the books. Uh, hopefully you all do as well. Or uh, if not, then, man, I hope that this was a great year for you. And if you've already closed the books on it, then you better get after those uh, those ducks and quail because those seasons are still in full swing for uh, all the wing shooters out there. Uh, man, we've got a, a great interview, a great topic to get into here regarding deer. Uh, but before we do that, this segment of the show is proudly brought to you by Lone Star Beer, the national beer of Texas. Well, let's bring on our first guest today. He is a longtime friend of the show, also our Texas Parks and Wildlife Whitetail Program Leader, and we're going to figure out what to do with uh, this urban deer population explosion here in the Lone Star State. Other states have uh, they've got models in place that you know, we need to be following, and, and as of right now, we're not doing that, but that is not Texas Parks and Wildlife's doing, and joining us now to get into the nitty-gritty of the uh, issue, it's my pleasure to welcome Alan Kane back to the show. Glad to be here, Cable. Um, it ought to be an interesting topic today, <laughs> I think. Yeah, no, there's no doubt about that, uh, but before we get into it, uh, first of all, uh, have you been staying busy here at the start of 2017? Yeah, we, we've been busy, um, myself and our staff. We're, we're finishing up uh, chronic wasting disease sampling in the field from hunter harvested deer in our age weight and antler surveys that we do every year in the locker plants. And then uh, for me, I've been in the office a little bit more, probably than most folks, uh, going over our survey results, our regulatory survey works from this, this fall and looking at the deer density and deer population estimates from the state and the, the various deer management units that we have outlined in the state. And uh, things look good um, this year. The n statewide numbers are, I think, around 4.2 million whitetails um, for just the population estimate. And that works out to about a deer for every – or 22 acres for every deer out uh, per deer so, mm -hmm. okay. so you know pretty good good population across the state and it appears to be growing if you look at about a 10 or 11 year trend we've definitely uh 
grown the population, which is good um, in some parts and not so good in others. So. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, and that's kind of what I wanted to get into today is some of those uh, areas where it's not so good. Uh, and I'm talking about this urban deer explosion. It's nothing new. It didn't just happen overnight. I mean, people have been experiencing this for some time in certain areas of the state. And and I'm going back. Uh, I was looking at this uh, report by Greg Creasy, I believe, from Texas Parks and Wildlife. It's an old report. It goes back to 2006. Um, but it, some of the numbers, even from 10 years ago, over 30,000 people seriously injured each year uh, in deer vehicle collisions, over 200 people killed, 1.5 million deer are killed in collisions. You know, everyone sees deer on the side of the road. That's nothing new, whether you're in urban areas or, you know, more rural. But uh, they cause about a billion dollars in property damages from, you know, these collisions. So what is, just overall, what is Texas Parks and Wildlife's stance on providing more urban deer hunting solutions to this epidemic? And I'm going to tell you, just kind of what got me thinking about this topic was, uh, I have a buddy who just moved from Houston to Comfort outside of San Antonio. And uh, and a couple weeks ago, he sent me a picture of, I'm not kidding you, it was something like 20-plus whitetail uh, does and uh, about that many axis, maybe 15 to 20 axis deer in his backyard. And he says, man, we got to do something about this. This is ridiculous. So uh, where does Texas Parks and Wildlife stand on that? Wow, that's a... Uh... A big question. Well, obviously, Parks and Wildlife wants a healthy deer population in across the state. And when it comes down to urban communities, we try to plot, provide as much flexibility for those communities and those residents to manage those deer populations. Mm-hmm. Um, so obviously, we've got the general hunting season, archery season, all the different deer seasons. You can legally harvest a deer. Um, that's in place, and certainly folks can harvest deer on their property. Uh, and we have the Managed Lands Deer Program that offers some flexibilities for seasons and bag limits. And then we've got some other permits like Triple T that allows, uh, in this case, it might be a homeowner's association or a property owner's association, something to trap deer and move those to other parts of the state and release those deer. But problem with that is that we've got to have suitable habitat and then there's another program called the trap transport and process that uh, cities or municipalities property owner associations those types of entities where you have these urban deer issues they can apply for the ttp trap the deer uh, they can uh, euthanize them and then uh, donate the meat to a charitable organization Um, so the food goes to a lot of times it goes to uh, food banks or homeless shelters or folks where uh, there's a need to provide a, a good quality source of protein. Uh-huh. The rub is for a lot of folks or in these cities. Um, or even the HOAs and the, uh, I guess the people that oversee it, I, I have a feeling you're going to say the rub is they're afraid to do it. Yeah. It, well, some are, some aren't. We've got some of good examples around the state, of, primarily in the hill country, where you would expect to have high deer densities, like you're talking around that comfort area, Austin, Atlanta, San Antonio, all those areas. You see lots of uh, urban deer issues. And so sometimes the leadership in the HOAs communities or the mayor of these little towns, they're pressed into action because, as you mentioned, there's deer vehicle collisions, there's injuries um, with people. Uh, there's damage to landscape. Some people don't like all the deer out there. 
and it comes down in part to the residents, one, agreeing on what needs to be done. A lot of times our biologists be called into a situation or in, into these communities, and, and they want us to tell them what to do. And, and we'll provide some advice, but at the end of the day, they have to make a decision because some people want lethal means, and they just want to get rid of the deer and solve the problem immediately. Others uh, like to see the deer around, and they may not be willing to see that population reduced to a level that's satisfactory to reduce some of the incidents uh, that are occurring out there. And then uh, there's some folks in the middle. And so it's getting those residents together to find some common ground that says, yes, we can agree to reduce the deer population to this level. Mm-hmm. The other thing that prohibits, you know, when you get back talking about urban deer and, and providing hunting solutions or uh a lot of times Parks and Wildlife has got plenty of permits or programs or seasons to allow harvest in these communities, but it's the, the laws and the city ordinances or county ordinances in these HOAs or POAs or the cities that are applying for these permits or want to hunt that prevent them from doing so. For example, you may not be able to discharge a firearm or discharge any sort of projectile, including an arrow, in uh, the city of Comfort, or mm-hmm. in Bernie, or in parts of San Antonio. Yeah, his HOA prohibits hunting, and and I know for where I live in Collin County, you have to have ten acres to bow hunt. That's an issue for a lot of people, like you're saying. And and yeah. back to the uh, destruction of uh, as far as landscape and stuff like that. I mean, three hundred million dollars a year. I mean, that's <laughs> that's a lot of money. It's significant, and and we do our staff, and, uh, especially our urban biologists that that work around these areas that you're more likely to see these issues, they have a list of deer resistant. I put little quotes around that, uh, what's resistant. You know, deer forced to eat, they'll eat but uh, about anything. But there's plants that you can plant out there that deer just don't prefer to browse on, and so you can have a reasonable landscape. And so those are ways that we help uh, folks in those communities try to deal with some of the browsing issues they may see uh, out there. And then there's simple things that cities can do if, for some reason, if you can't hunt, which clearly that seems to be the most effective way to manage the deer population in an area where you don't have natural predators or you may have a closed population or, or some sort of population that doesn't have access to, to readily move in and out. Uh, and so one thing is to stop feeding. Uh, some of these cities around the state in Texas have, ban, have feeding bans going on to um, reduce concentration of deer. Uh-huh. But you still get residents that uh, like to see them. I mean, I've heard stories uh, talking to some of these folks that uh, where a feeding ban's gone into uh, effect, these little old ladies that love to see the deer, um, almost think of them as pets, will actually feed corn uh, up on their back porch or even in right inside the door so, you know, so they don't get caught feeding. Um, and it's just, you know, you. I can understand um, deer are neat critters to look at. Everybody likes to view them and enjoy, uh, enjoy them out there across the landscape or maybe in the backyard. But yeah. you have to have some reasonable expectations of, you know, what's safe and what's not. And probably feeding deer in your your house or your back porch is not. And uh, Yeah, well, like you said, society, we love deer. They're, you know, they're docile animals. They're beautiful. You know, we, we get it. But I think the fear is that when you start talking about management, folks are like, oh, you're going to eradicate all the deer. No, just manage them. You know, let's reduce the number. Let's make it safe for everybody. Uh, in this report uh, by um, Greg here from a couple years back, he mentions that 
to even start a successful management program, you need to come in and get rid of 50% of the population off the top. And then thereafter, you know, every year have some kind of management plan in place. So it, it is substantial, the number of deer that need to be taken out, uh, but it's far from eradication. Um, and, and what we tell a lot of folks, um, Cable, is, uh, you know, a lot of times people want a, a hard and fast number. But sometimes that's difficult to do or you can't find agreement among the citizens with the community. So what we tell them is, look, look at another metric. Look at the number of deer vehicle collisions. Look at the number of complaints about deer eating my landscape because a lot of them keep track of this stuff. And we say, look, you, your metric may be my if I have 10 complaints a month and it goes down to two complaints a month, then I've successfully met my goal of managing that population. And so we can start with the number and say, hey, let's try to take it down to, you know, half the population. But it mm-hmm. may end up that you could take it down 25% in some sort of annual maintenance, and that's enough to satisfy everybody. And in others, you may have extreme cases where you need to reduce your population 75%. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's lots of opportunities. You know, uh, some of these communities – you know, again, we allow hunting to occur anywhere in the state. You know, it's just the, the city and the county laws that may prevent that. There's other states that have um, urban deer hunts. Um, they're archery-only hunts. And some of them, uh, like in Virginia and Maryland, um, and even West Virginia, I think, has a pretty successful bow hunting program. The the, the, the wildlife agency there doesn't necessarily – set up the hunts in the cities but it works with those cities to give them recommendations a lot of times they have you know you can bow hunt in in somebody's backyard you know talking to my deer uh, coordinator counterparts some of them are actually sitting on the deck in the backyard of a two-story house shooting deer and (laughs) it's just but they have requirements you have to go some of them have to go through bow hunting training you can only hunt on hunt on certain days like during the week and uh and then they require permission. You have to go through a bow hunter education class. And sure. there's lots of different ways to get around that. And to me, this is where the cities could uh, maybe think outside the box or some of these bow hunting organizations in the state could approach the cities and say, hey, there's a model in other states and other big cities out there. Let's try this and then give our folks some uh, opportunity to do some hunting in these areas where we need to reduce deer populations. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and, and let's explain exactly why these populations tend to explode in these areas. Uh, I think my understanding, first and foremost, is that by and large, they're kind of void of predators. Don't, I mean, don't get me wrong, there's coyotes in urban areas, of sure. course there are, uh, but not like you would find out, you know, uh, in more wild situations. And so you're talking about a fawn recruitment class that is kept in check by predators, and then when you don't have that, that limiting factor, they just go crazy. Yeah, uh, very simple uh, explanation is just, you know, lack of predators or lack of mortality sources, um, and if it's not predators out, you know, the rangeland out there, you've got deer hunters helping to manage that population. Obviously, we don't have that. The other two things that come into mind, you know, when we're talking about explosion of populations, again, a lot of folks that start out well-intentioned, start feeding deer. And then you put those deer on a higher nutritional plane, and so as you pointed out, their fawn success, their fawn recruitment goes way up, and then it just starts to snowball after that. And then the other thing that uh, we need to be thinking about, especially folks that are, uh, are developers out there that are building new communities, 
building new subdivisions, putting together these HOAs and POAs, a lot of times they'll quote they'll build it up so much that there's no corridor for those deer to get in and out of that that city or a way for them to escape or where it's being developed and so essentially they become trapped in an island of habitat maybe just a little bit of green space and that's where they are Mm -hmm. but if we leave some if these developers will leave some corridors where deer can get out and get out in the rangeland ultimately these cities can hopefully get those deer out of there you know implement a feeding ban and as the population gets low enough they could fence off those corridors if they wanted to keep the deer from coming back in obviously with a high fence and then uh and just manage what few remaining deer are there and hopefully it's not an issue mm-hmm. um, but as you said it you know predation is a big part or not having a mortality source and then you've got the the travel corridors or the, the islands of habitat where the deer are trapped um, those sorts of things definitely contribute to an overpopulation and feeding Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, so just to kind of sum things up here, Texas Parks and Wildlife is pro um, hunting opportunity, or basically anything that's going to help manage these populations. It's it's the uh, the cities, the HOAs, counties, all, you know, all that stuff is really the limiting factor on on urban deer hunting um, opportunity, I guess. Yes, uh, really it comes down to the cities and sometimes it's their laws I may need to consider changing and other times it's just uh, getting the residents together. A lot of them have these little deer management committees that will sit down and address the issues and they'll work with our biologists to come up with a solution to their plan. A lot of times, in fact most all the time, we are going to recommend some sort of population reduction. How that gets done is another story, um, yeah. you know. And something else, I guess, I, I'll just touch on it briefly. We're starting to get calls from folks about uh, the idea of um, contraceptives for deer uh, or contraception, uh, applying that to chemicals to apply to deer or uh, catching deer and sterilizing them. And right now... Sounds expensive uh, to me. <laughs> and one, it's expensive. And two, the uh, contraception uh, method where they're applying a chemical, uh, it's not very successful um, as far as reducing the overall population. Even if you could get the deer, uh, you know, injected with the contraceptive, he's still got a population problem until they, um, the population declines. But aside from that, it's just not shown to be that effective. Mm -hmm. Um, And the, the thing I would want listeners to understand is that there's a state a law, a state statute, so that's a, a law, um, a state law that says you can't apply contraception to, and I would throw sterilization in there with that, but you can't apply that to wildlife without specific permission from Parks and Wildlife. And we we don't we don't have any permits to allow such an activity, uh, and the only time that we even would consider that and have in the past is under a uh, genuine research project uh, that's conducted typically through a, a research institution like a university looking at the effectiveness of you know contraception or sterilization and the last study I remember was done down on some property that NASA had down by Houston essentially uh, it if you're going to have any reasonable success you have to have a closed population so that means no deer coming in no deer going out mm-hmm. and then the vast majority of uh, 
POAs, HOAs, cities, municipalities in the state where urban deer problem is, you always have some sort of ingress and egress. Maybe a little bit, uh, or may just be a little, not a whole lot, but you have enough that you're always having some sort of recruitment of new deer in that population and providing some sort of contraception or uh, sterilization technique wouldn't work. But yeah. beyond that, it's just not lawfully permitted. It sounds crazy to begin with. I mean, you know, yeah. we have the solution. Uh, a, a bullet or an arrow is a lot cheaper than some contraceptive program. So let's let hunters do their job and, and help Texas Parks and Wildlife manage uh, these urban deer populations. And like we said, it starts uh, It starts with each community more likely than not. Uh, but I think that, you know, we just got to get over that mindset that uh, it's wrong to take advantage of this renewable resource. Everybody likes to watch deer, but at the end of the day, uh, they're becoming quite a problem in certain areas. And so use them as food and then a recreation source as well. So that's good. Yeah, <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> it all plays into that role of management and hunters are a big part and we need to continue to promote that where we can, especially in these urban deer areas. Mm-hmm. Well, we certainly appreciate your time today. Yeah, I enjoyed it, Cable. Um, hopefully uh, everybody's had a great and uh, successful deer season. I know at least the north zone is closed and, and the south zone is finishing up, and I know there's been some great bucks killed this year, so I hope a lot of your listeners have had a good season. We look forward to touching base again sometime soon. All right, take care. Talk to you soon. All right, there he goes, our Texas Parks and Wildlife Whitetail Program Leader, Alan Kane. And the solution is so simple. I mean, our, our friends up north, um, all over New England and Virginia and, and elsewhere, they've given us the solution. We need to open up urban deer hunting opportunity, let hunters do their jobs. Uh, people on HOA boards, uh, city council members, y'all need to stop being such wusses. Don't worry about hurting people's feelings. I mean, enough is enough. We've got a, a, a real problem. We know what the answer is. Let's start whacking some of these urban deer, putting food on the table, and have fun doing it. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, okay, that segment of the show brought to you by Dallas Safari Club. We need to take a break. Up next, we're going to shift gears, head up to the lower Mountain Fork River, and do a little trout fishing with longtime fly fishing guide Peter Breeden of Beaver's Bend Fly Shop. And we're also going to get into a fly fishing trip we're about to give away right here on DSC's Lone Star Outdoor Show. Search for a dime, only found a penny to scratch them off. Never was good at winning. Cable Smith here for Deerview Windows. As a whitetail hunter, nothing is more frustrating than poor visibility in a deer blind. It can flat ruin a hunt. At Deerview Window Company, they manufacture windows solely for the use in deer stand and deer blinds. All of their windows and doors can be custom made to fit your specific openings. Or you can select from standard sizes, from hinged windows to sliding windows and everything in between. Visit DeerviewWindows.com to determine which style window is best for your deer blind. Plus, you'll get a free quote. Deerview Windows, where visibility matters. Howdy friends, Cable Smith here, and many of you have seen my pictures throughout the last hunting season of my custom 7 mag. That rifle was built by Horizon Firearms. Horizon Firearms is a custom rifle builder here in Texas, located in College Station, and they specialize in extremely accurate custom rifles designed exactly the way you want them. Give them a call at 979-229-4664 or check them out at horizonfirearms.com. 
Hi, this is professional bass angler Kelly Jordan, and if I'm not on the lake or in the deer stand, there's a good chance I'll be listening to the Lone Star Outdoor Show. My Nashville friends, they think I'm strange to make my home out on the range. They think it's nothing but a God-forsaken land. Western Skies, one of my favorites there from the late great Chris Ledoux bringing us back on Dallas Safari Club's Lone Star Outdoor Show brought to you by Lone Star Beer. And Hoff, Power Polaris, I'm Cable Smith. And it is truly a treat to be here with you every weekend as we're all set to talk a little trout fishing momentarily. So uh, grab your fly rod because we're about to jump into it. But first, this segment of the show is brought to you by Rudy's True Texas Style Barbecue where you can stop in for breakfast, lunch, or dinner and enjoy Rudy's True Texas-style barbecue. Uh, Okay, let's go ahead and bring on our next guest. He is actually a fly fishing guide joining us from southeastern Oklahoma. My favorite trout fishing destination is Beaver's Bend and the Lower Mountain Fork River system. It's my pleasure to welcome Peter Breeden to the show. Thanks for having me, man. It's good to be here. You bet. Uh, so, first of all, how has the fishing been at my favorite trout fishing destination? It's been really good. We're seeing a lot of big fish start to show up from uh, areas downstream. Uh-huh. And with the uh, you know fewer people out on the river, colder weather, it's really making for a good bite right now. Awesome, awesome. Yeah, and you know there are anglers out there who still don't know about Beaver's Bend and the Lower Mountain Fork River system, um, it, which... It's my favorite place to go because it's only two hours from, you know, my door here, you know, up in McKinney. It's a, it's a two-hour drive, and boom, you're at a legit trout stream. Um, how long have you been going up there? I've been going up to Beaver's Bend close to five years now. Okay. And uh, was blown away by it my first time up there. And then how long have you been fly fishing? Uh, I've been fly fishing going on close to 20 years. Uh-huh. Okay. And, and where are you from originally? I'm originally from east of Dallas, a little town called Terrell, Texas. Oh, yeah. No, I hunt ducks out there frequently, uh, Wills Point area. So uh, go through Terrell every time. Um, well, so so you've been fly fishing 20 years, and you just found out about Beaver's Bend five years ago. So that's kind of my point is people don't know about it. We need to tell them about it, um, especially if they're trout or fly fishing enthusiasts. Heck, if you're just like trout fishing, my wife, you know, she doesn't, know how to cast a fly rod but she can put a worm on a hook and go catch some trout there you know so it, it's not just for the fly fishermen so don't make you know want to say it's a it's a family destination as well um why don't you explain how so we're in the southern united states like i said just two hours away from dallas how do they keep a stable trout fishery alive throughout you know the hot months of the year because there's, well, a, there's it, a trick to it, which is, I'm sure you know why, but why don't you tell our listeners? Well, it's it's pretty interesting. We're actually a pretty unique situation in that we have uh, a, a spillway uh-huh. where they don't usually generate water out of, as well as a powerhouse generation. So really, we have, uh, for the most part, fishable water, no matter what the generation schedule says, 365 days a year, 24 hours a day. Yeah. Um, there's no generation there and those stable flows with the water coming out from the bottom of the dam, um, in the low 50 degrees Fahrenheit, it really, uh, creates a unique and survivable situation for trout year round, even in Southeast Oklahoma. Yeah. Well, and that's the key, uh, Broken Bow Lake is a deep lake. And like you said, they're pulling that water out from right below the dam water. It's very deep there. And so the water stays cool year round. 
And uh, and like you said, that's why these trout are able to survive. But who actually so do, heads up the stocking? Well, we uh, the stockings are done by Crystal Lakes Fish Hatchery in Missouri. They're contracted by the Oklahoma Department of Wildlife Conservation. Uh-huh. We do also uh, get brown trout that are stocked through trades uh, with uh, hatchery in Wyoming. Um, in exchange for fish we have down here, we get brown trout from them. And then the we also get federal mitigation fish that they'll occasionally put in hmm. uh, as well. So oh, It's pretty constant, though. My understanding is it's every other week. It is. We do. We get a fresh stocking of trout every two weeks. And they're not little dinks either. Like, no offense to Texas Parks and Wildlife, they do. They have a great winter trout stocking program. But the trout are all between 12 and 15 inches. You know, maybe well, actually 10 and 15 inches, I think. And the, the and the thing is, they're all going to die once you know temperatures get into the 80s. Uh, they're dead. Uh, you know, they do a great program, give you opportunity to catch trout. Uh, this, that, and the other, but the trout are pretty small. These these ones that get stocked um, up there, I, you know, and I've caught them before. They're they're some pretty nice fish. There are, yeah. We have, you know, every stocking they they throw in a few three to four pounders, and and we've got fish in the river that are even bigger than that. I mean, I've seen, you know, fish caught over ten pounds on that river. Wow. Um, on the lower mountain fork, and and not only do they stock them good size, but with the year-round growing conditions. Um, you know, the metabolism never slows. They have a very high uh, food base, good forage base. They're they're able to put on weight and size very quickly as well in uh-huh. that river. Okay. So there is a lot of lot of growth after they're stocked as well. Well, you know, I, I love to fly fish for trout. So for me, that's the allure of, of Broken Bow and, and the Lower Mountain Fork. Talk about something though, that changed recently because I was there, um, I guess it was two summers ago. It was after the first major flood. And I was having just a hell of a time. I think I'd been fishing for four or five hours, not even uh, gotten a bite. So I went over to the fly shop and talked to uh, the owner, who's an old uh, football coach. And he's been there, I don't know, how, how long has he had the shop now? He's had the shop uh, around five years as well. Okay. Yeah. And, and anyway, uh, he hooked me up, told me what I need to fish with. Boom. I, I was I was in it, you know, uh, hooked up with quite a few fish in the afternoon. And uh, and they can do they do that for everybody, um, <clears throat> but he was talking about the flood. Like where I was standing in the fly shop would have been like four feet underwater. So that was the first flood, and then we had another flood come in, and it actually wiped the uh, the fly shop completely away. And and I think now it's on the other side of the uh, road completely. Yes, it is. Uh, it, it, the river, the second flood, really was tough on the river. We did have our shop washed away. Um, and we, we are now located, like you said, directly across from where the old shop was. And we're actually about three times bigger than we were um, before. And, and it really, really actually created a lot of room for us. Hmm. Um, as far as the river goes, uh, Lost Creek is still gone. Lost Creek's um, lost. It's <laughs> lost. It's totally gone. And, and I always tell people, I mean, there is not really a single recognizable feature left on the river. Um, Spillway Creek did get stripped down to the bedrock. Uh, and then the bluffs, uh, the bend right there is completely taken out. There is more of a lake up at the bluffs that still holds good fish. And then it splits into two channels, comes down, and the Corps um, actually got the ODWC back in there. And they, they flattened out the big rock mound. It's actually a lot more accessible now. Uh-huh. Uh, it's not as treacherous to walk on it. And they also did a little work on that 
run coming out of the bluff. Uh, they widened it, deepened up some of the holes, and added some big rocks in there. So it looks really good. It's some new fishable water for us, and it's starting to be very productive. Yeah. So, uh, you know, you hate losing Lost Creek. They dumped a lot of money into that project uh, when they built it. But overall, and I talked to a game warden after the first flood, and, and he said that he thought long-term it was actually going to help the fishery. So uh, I don't know if if you'd agree with that or not. Well, I will tell you one thing. After the floods, I've been seeing some really incredible insect activity and hatches. I mean, the blueing olives coming off right now are, are really thick. The PMDs are coming off. We're seeing diverse uh, insect hatches up Spillway Creek even, where a lot of people were thinking that it would be scoured and all uh, insect life would be washed away. So, you know, I'm seeing a lot of positives in the food. It seems to really be bouncing back and we're seeing a lot of rising fish that are keyed into those hatches. And uh, overall, it's a really good sign for the river. Hmm. Awesome. I'm usually on the water up there three or four days a week. Okay. Talk about what the fish are hitting right now. And give us your, uh, you know, a couple of your favorite dry flies and then also uh, droppers that uh, are producing the most strikes. Well, so for dry flies right now, I've been throwing blue wing olive imitations generally in a size 22 to 24. Um, also, you don't want to go out with a little dry fly cream, uh, cream midge imitation uh, around the same size. Uh, they've also been coming up on some light Cahills. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the shop, we have a really great light Cahill imitation um, that, that they've really been keying in on. For my droppers, I, a rule of thumb for me in Beaver's Bend is always throw an olive emerger off the back of it. That olive emerger could be an olive RS2, an olive WD-40, uh, or just an olive soft tackle of some kind. With a, And you can have a midge in front of it, a little olive midge, black midge. Um, but generally my favorite colors up there are black, gray, and olive. Okay. Um, we go to an area, if you're an entry-level fly fisherman, never done it before, we're going to go to an area that has an ease of casting as well as an opportunity to catch fish. And uh, on a half day, we're going to focus more on getting you on a fish so that you're hooked. You want, you know, you see it's possible that it can be done and you're not just out there beating the water for four hours. Right. Um, So, and and that's very important. Um, You know, I know a lot of guys that go out there and cast and get very frustrated because they don't see those fish. So a lot of times when they get that quick fish, it shows them that it's possible and really keeps it engaged throughout the morning. Okay. Well, yeah, and it doesn't matter how long I've been fly fishing or, you know, uh, how good or bad I am. It do- I spend half the day hung up in trees and shrubs and, you know, this, that, and the other anyway. So for me, fly fishing, it's more like hunting um, because if I fish all day and I catch one or two fish, I couldn't be happier, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And it's something like hunting as well. You know, you see so many different situations. Um, you know, you're always learning something, just like when I'm out in the woods or you're out in the woods, you always always learn something and and uh, that's that's one of my favorite things about fly fishing mm-hmm. and it's uh I'm, i imagine y'all are catch and release we are yes we practice catch and release um that way the fish they can get, be put back and continue to grow to impressive sizes yeah but uh, they're uh the lower mountain fork it's not all catch and release if people want to go no, out there not. you can keep a couple fish um absolutely in yeah. the blue zone regulations you can keep six rainbows of any size mm-hmm. and one brown of any size or i'm sorry one brown 20 inches or bigger oh, wow. um yeah which 
you know, there aren't a whole lot of Browns, so more than likely um, that that won't come into play. But you can have six total fish in the blue zone in aggregate. Okay. Red zone regulations, you can only have one fish in aggregate of either species, and it has to be 20 inches or bigger. Mm-hmm. And they, you can find a map and all that stuff on the website. Or the best thing to do is if you're going to go fish uh, the lower mountain fork, is just go to the Beaver's Bend Fly Shop, and, and they can walk you through that stuff. Um, coach is pretty good about <laughs> telling you the do's and don'ts and what you need to have uh, in your box if you want to catch Absolutely. fish, uh, like you did for me. Uh, here's the cool thing, though, is you know we have our monthly photo contest, and I figured you know let's do something different. We don't give away a lot of fishing trips. Usually, it's hunting or fishing gear, but this month uh, the photo of the month winner is going to get to go on a half day fishing trip with you uh, and myself. So we're going to encourage people to uh, send in their best hunting or fishing photo to Lone Star Outdoors Show at gmail.com. Better yet, uh, they can post it on our Facebook page wall or on Instagram. They can use that hashtag LSOS photo contest. We'll get them entered. I'm sure we're going to have a lot of submissions this month. And uh, then at the end of the month, we'll let them sort it out through a fan vote. So we are certainly uh, excited about fishing with you, Peter, and and also uh, one of our listeners. Absolutely. I'm really excited about being able to get out with you guys. Yeah. And uh, it's going to be great. Yeah. Well, and you guys have a great uh, Instagram page as well. If you want to tell us uh, what the, I forget, is it just Beaver's Bend Fly Shop? Yes. You can go to Instagram. Beaver's Bend Fly Shop is the Instagram name. Same thing with the Facebook page. And uh, I also run a Instagram page, Revenge Run Fly Fishing, with a lot of pictures that we post personally of uh, fish from Beaver's Bend. Cool. Um, so you can go to either one of those pages and, and see fish that have been caught up there. Awesome. Um, so, yeah, uh, we, we get a, a lot of traffic through there, and, and we like being able to show off what the potential the fishery has and, and what, you know, what, what's already up there. Um, mm-hmm. And it's an interesting note, we are, as well, the only trout stream in Oklahoma with stream-borne trout. Um, so that's always, uh, so they do produce naturally there, huh? We do. Yeah. We, uh, we actually even post flood the second flood in December, which wiped out everything. We actually had a successful spawn after that flood. And we've had a guy, um, from Oklahoma state named Tyler Farling. Um, great guy. He's actually doing a study right now on the wild trout. Um, and you know, the successful reproduction on the lower mountain fork. Hmm. So wow. it's, it's very unique to have successful reproduction. And like you said, only two hours from Dallas, you can go and catch stream born trout. Yeah. Well, it truly is like a little jewel right there in Southeast Oklahoma. So, uh, I yeah. encourage people to go, uh, they've got cabins. If you want to take your family, we do that every summer. We take, uh, my wife's side, we all go up there, rent a cabin, spend three or four days and I let them watch the kids and I go fishing. So all the dads out there, maybe, uh, you can kind of pencil in family vacation slash fishing trip, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. It's a great place for families, you know, and they have horseback riding, canoeing, yeah. um, paddle boats. It's just, a, it's a great family place, yeah. great escape. To get we rented place. a pontoon boat and went out and oh, did yeah. some inner tubing and, you know, the kids love that too. So um, y'all check it out. Beaver's Bend truly is a, a great destination. Um, well, hey man, we are certainly looking forward to this contest and, I'm sure we're going to get lots of great photos and uh, certainly excited about coming up and fishing with you. Uh, I think we're going to do it probably in uh, April. For, so the winter, uh, you know, we'll have, we'll have plenty of time to plan it and and uh, make a great trip out of it. Absolutely. Well, I'm really looking forward to it, Cable. I 
I appreciate it, and uh, it's going to be a great day. Awesome. Well, hey, thanks a lot, Peter, and uh, we look forward to coming up there and fishing with you very soon. Yes, sir. I'm looking forward to it as well. Thank you. All right. There he goes, Peter Breeden, head fly fishing guide from the Beaver's Bend Fly Shop. And an awesome photo of the month grand prize for this month's winner. Like I said, uh, they're going to get to go on a guided fly fishing trip with Peter and myself. Uh, really, with Peter, <laughs> I am in no way, shape, or form qualified to uh, guide anyone on a fly fishing trip. I love it, but uh, I'm pretty sure we will catch more fish if we let Peter do the guiding. Okay, uh, that segment, by the way, was brought to you by Scent Blocker. Y'all know that's what I trust, the brand that I wear on all of my hunting and outdoor adventures. Uh, take the recent mountain lion hunt I did in Colorado, for example. Temperatures got down to like negative 5 degrees. Wind was howling. You're up in the mountains. But guess what? I was nice and toasty in my Scent Blocker Apex suit. Plus, I had the base layers and the midweight layers. I mean, the whole shebang. And they've got it all right there on their website at scentblocker.com. So uh, do yourself a favor and check out their full lineup of hunting apparel by visiting scentblocker.com. Let's take a break. Up next, we're going to head down to the Laguna Atascosa Wildlife Refuge in South Texas and get into these endangered ocelots. I'm talking there might only be 50 of them left in the wild. But hey, it My might not be all doom and gloom and for these cool little cats. Uh, joining us next, it's U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service wildlife biologist Hillary Swartz. We're talking all things ocelots right here on DSC's Lone Star Outdoors show. So I got my daddy's name stitched across my chest And now I can drop a man from about two clicks I wonder if he's proud of me yet In the market for a compact track loader? Then check out the Bobcat Advantage, where Bobcat track loaders squared off against other brands in a variety of tests and challenges. Whether you're looking for performance advantages, uptime protection, or quality design, Bobcat compact track loaders are the best-built machines in the industry. But don't take our word for it. Watch the videos at BobcatAdvantage.com or see Bobcat machines in person at Bobcat of Dallas and Louisville, Fort Worth, Cedar Hill, Longview, and now McKinney. Visit bobcatofdallas.com or call 469-586-0000. Hey, y'all. Chris Letzinger, online sales manager at Cinnamon Creek Ranch here, reminding you we're not your typical archery club. We're a one-of-a-kind archery facility with indoor and outdoor ranges, full pro shop, and six different 3D courses. Cinnamon Creek was designed by hunters for hunters. Located in Roanoke, Texas, we have over 200 3D targets to hone your archery skills. Call 817-439-8998 or visit us at cinnamoncreekranch.com to visit our new online store. That's cinnamoncreekranch.com. Scotty Wiggins Band Home is the name of that one, bringing us back on Dallas Safari Club's Lone Star Outdoor Show, brought to you by Lone Star Beer and Hoff Power Polaris. Cable Smith riding shotgun with you. Thank you so much for being here with me. This is my favorite part of every week is getting to talk outdoors with you fine folks, and I appreciate you tuning in. As 
and we've got a great conservation topic to get into. Uh, anyone who really enjoys hunting or fishing likely is at their core a conservationist and deep down in the furthest reaches of South Texas we've got the last remnant population of ocelots existing in the United States today and uh, we're going to really kind of take a look at what's going on with those cats here momentarily but first this segment of the show Proudly brought to you by Sendero Seed Company, Texas' premier seed company. They've got anything and everything you need to keep a happy and healthy whitetail herd, including the Dr. Deer-backed Buck Forge Oats. Check them out at SenderoSeed.com or call Rob Hughes at one 610 seed today um, Okay, well, without further ado, uh, well, y'all like my little hick accent I did there? I'm actually from the city, y'all. <laughs> but uh no i am damn sure from texas and uh i don't know maybe people that tune into our podcast from up north think i sound like a hick uh i don't know but anyway it is what it is uh, our next guest though hails from the laguna atascosa wildlife refuge down in south texas uh, she is specifically uh, very hands-on with that ocelot population and it is my pleasure to welcome Hillary Swartz to the program. Thank you so much for having me on your program. It is our pleasure. Uh, so first of all, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do uh, for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service down at the Laguna Atascosa Wildlife Refuge? Okay. I'm a wildlife biologist here at the refuge, and my Main focus is ocelot uh, monitoring and recovery. Hmm. So pretty much all of my time is spent in some form or another working towards trying to keep ocelots here in Texas. Okay. And how long have you been working with the endangered ocelots of uh, South Texas? So I arrived um, in late 2013, so it's been a little bit over three years, and uh, I came from California. It was a, you know, steep learning curve, new environment, new ecology, new species. Um, but it's been incredibly rewarding, and uh, I'm, I'm I'm taken by by the landscape here. Uh huh. Well, and, and it's interesting because you you said you're from California. Let me ask you this: as far as your mindset or your mm -hmm. perception of hunting, because I know there's a trend now among. Uh, younger generation of, of wildlife biologists out there, uh, you know, with, within state agencies and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife uh, Service, that they don't hunt. Uh, so I don't know if you're a hunter, um, but what uh, what is your background there, and, and has that changed uh, since you moved to Texas? So I myself am not a hunter. It's not something – I actually grew up in Connecticut and then lived in California for like 20 years, and it just wasn't something that I really bumped into much. Uh-huh. Um, it's not something where, you know, coming here that I've taken it up or, or grown interested in it. What I'll definitely say is it's clear to me, especially in some parts of the country more than others, that I think if it weren't for um, the conservation interests of hunters and anglers, we would be left with a lot less, you know, natural lands, public access lands places where people can experience nature, whether it's hunting or, um, you know, photography or whatever they like. So I think the conservation community 
definitely owes a debt to hunters and anglers for, for keeping nature around in places that might have otherwise gotten developed. Awesome. Yeah, I'm glad to hear you say that because we always use this hashtag, hunting is conservation, and some people don't get it, but, uh, I, you know, hunters at their you know at their core are conservationists, Ang- anglers too. So. I mean, I think you see, you know, in, in, in every subgroup of people, you see a range of attitudes and a range of behaviors, and certainly amongst hunters, like any other group I've seen, um, some really positive examples and some less positive examples, sure. but you know, at the heart of it, um, I I I want that hashtag to be as true as possible with as many people as possible. And sometimes it's just bridging that link, yeah. you know, and and letting people understand um, that that people experience nature in different ways. Sure, sure. Well, cool. Well, it's glad to hear you say that. Like you said, you come from a little bit different background uh, than most of our listeners, so that's awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, so you've been working with these ocelots, getting back to the uh, topic for today, for uh-huh. going well, over three years. Tell us about their historic range in Texas. I don't know. You know, right now they're just in South Texas. I don't know if 100 years mm-hmm. ago they were you know, up farther north, because I did look at their their worldwide distribution, which basically is just Texas on down through much of South America, you know, so, uh-huh. but historically, um, were they only found in South Texas or did they, uh, you know, show up in other parts of, of Texas? So it's, um, so I guess there's like kind of a couple angles on this and I don't want to get too into the weeds, but definitely ocelots as an overall species range from Texas down through to South the southern area of um, South America, you know, through Central America and Mexico, even sometimes some of them will pop up in Arizona, actually. So as far as an overall species, um, you know, there, there are some numbers out there. So that's really hopeful. However, for the population in Texas, there are specific subspecies. And usually what you find is, you know, if you have a widespread species that has subspecies divisions, those subspecies are particularly suited to the areas they live, right? Mm-hmm. So like the Texas ocelots, you know, they know this thorn scrub, um, you know, better than you and I even probably know our own houses. And then if you dump them all of a sudden in the middle of the Amazonian rainforest, they, you they know, struggle. they might not yeah. really have the, the same adaptation physically and behaviorally to, to live the same way they're used to. So so, you know, for people who say, wait, what do you mean? There's thousands of ocelots all over. What's this endangered thing? That's kind of the perspective we're coming from is this is a, a, a subspecies of ocelots unique to Texas and the state south of us in Tamaulipas in Mexico that, you know, is particularly suited to this environment, which sure. is different, you know, as you span down. Oh, yeah. So that's kind of a big answer for the species. And then as far as Texas ocelots, they used to range actually all the way up through Texas into um, western Louisiana and Arkansas. So, you know, it was, it was a really widespread population. And what happened was kind of at different periods in history based on either, you know, movement of, of just humans, residentially speaking, and agriculture, oil and gas extraction, etc., the ocelot habitat, as fascinating and rich with species as it is, is is not really conducive to human activities. I mean, I don't know if you've ever gotten 
belly down in this thorn shrub, but oh, I've tracked a wounded deer where... back down there plenty of times. Yeah, it's uh... yeah, and you don't, you know, you don't want to build a house there. You can't grow a vegetable. You're crawling there. on your hands you and knees just to get through it. Yeah, I mean, it's literally yeah. if you're lucky. Sometimes yeah. you're just snaking on your belly, you know, and, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. under your belly are thorns and bugs and who knows what all. So, um, it's you know, it's not it's not a mystery why that habitat has not really been able to persist. There's some statistics out there that say something like about 95% of that habitat has disappeared from Texas. Um, that number gets disputed, but I think the important part is most of it's gone. Sure. You know, at the end of the day, most of it's gone. And so we're working really hard because ocelots, you know, have always been in Texas. And, and especially Texans, this is a group of people who love their state. They love the resources it has to offer. They love their wildlife. And as Fish and Wildlife Service, we want to make sure that ocelots remain a part of that natural Texas heritage. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, well, and I was just going to bring up, you know, if you look at the IUCN's list, which if you go to, like, any mm-hmm. any animal's Wikipedia page, that's where it's yep, going yep. to have, you know, endangered, you know, threatened, mm-hmm. blah, 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 on down to least concern, and there's the ocelot at least concerned. So I'm glad you kind of explained that this is a different subspecies, totally separate population. Um, right. Yeah. And and I, I think another thing along those lines is, um, you know, certainly we wouldn't appreciate it if, I'll pick a country out of a hat, if like Bolivia came and told us, hey, you need to manage this species this way. Sure. In the same way that we in the U.S., are, you know, it's not really our place to go and tell other countries how they should be managing things. So, mm-hmm. you know, what we can quote unquote control or at least manage for is probably a more realistic um, phrase is what we have here inside the U.S. Right. So, you know, if all of a sudden and, and, and it's, you know, it's not um, it's not secret knowledge that a lot of habitat is being lost throughout Mexico, Central and South America. And those ocelot populations could find themselves in, in similar peril, you know, any time in the relatively near future. So mm-hmm. our goal is, you know, let's try to keep them in Texas as best we can. And let's try to coordinate with the global community on ocelots so that they, in their own countries, in their own um, ecosystems, have value for that animal as well and, and you know, work towards positive management. But at the end of the day, you know, I can't march into the Brazilian consulate and say, do this, do that. Sure, you know? right. Well, let's talk about this because, you know, here's a cat that's roughly the same <clears throat> size as a bobcat, but mm-hmm. ultimately so different. And I, I guess a lot of it has more to do with ocelots are a lot more secretive. I mean, here you got bobcats. I live I live in a very urban area, and it's nothing to see a bobcat just, you know, walking around. Oh, the yeah, we, we trip over them over here, yeah. for sure, for sure. The big, the big difference, I think, that is why the ocelot is so, um, so rare versus the bobcat. They're actually extremely similar in a lot of important ways, such as, like, what they'll eat, you know. Mm-hmm. Bobcats maybe will favor rabbits a little bit more whereas ocelots may favor um, rodents and birds a little more. But at the end of the day, there's huge prey overlap. What is really different, I think, is the ocelots really only stick to the tamaleep and thorn scrub, to this really specific habitat type. And like you said, you know, you're in a relatively urban area. You've got bobcat there, 
we've got Bobcat in the wildest parts of the refuge. We've got them in downtown McAllen. Mm-hmm. You know, they are really habitat generalists. And so that just opens up, you know, their, their range so much. I mean, you could see one strolling across an ag field. You could see one. We actually had a report of one that had somehow gotten itself into the Cameron County Jail, not for any criminal reasons. But, you know, it lets you know that, that, that they're really much more bold in terms of where they'll go. And the ocelot is very restricted to one habitat type. Oh, and sure. To be honest, when I moved here, I didn't totally believe that was true. I thought for sure at night they're walking on the roads or they're cutting across this field or something. I mean, it just seems so um, impossible that they wouldn't maybe take advantage of that, you know, moving a little more quickly from A to B. But the more I've been here, the more I've seen the data we collect, the more I really realize it's true. They're so restricted to that habitat type, and so their numbers are pretty much a direct reflection of how much of that habitat exists and how much of it is connected. Hmm. Okay. And, and one other thing, and you can tell us if this is true or false, um, I did read that ocelots typically only have one kitten at a time where, you know, bobcats can have two, three, it's no big deal. So, like, a, yeah, on so, a reproduction standpoint, that might be a limiting factor as well. And that's, I think that's a hugely important point. I'm glad you brought that up. Their natural biology in terms of reproduction is also really different. The staff on ocelots are, are sort of, they come from zoos, and that's always, you always want to just have a little caution transferring zoo data to wildlife populations. But in the zoos, they see somewhere in the two-thirds, uh, having one kitten, a third maybe having two kittens, apparently once in a blue moon, three, but I think that might be more zoo lore than anything else. Mm-hmm. It's certainly nothing I've ever heard any real concrete information on. Um, and here, our observations are really that we're seeing females with one kitten. Now, okay. it's possible, you know, we're doing remote monitoring and we're doing it on camera and you know, if we have one picture of one female with one kitten, we don't know if, you know, a few seconds later an, a, another kitten was walking behind the camera, that sure. kind of thing. But I would say for the most part, we're really talking about one mom, one kitten as a, as a general rule. Bobcats, we've seen as many, I think, as three and four with a mom, mm-hmm. and that's not super uncommon, certainly two. You oh, know, yeah. At I, mean, a minimum, I get trail camera pictures from listeners all the time of two and three kittens for bobcats. Yeah, exactly, so. exactly. So if you're looking at, you know, habitat restriction and then reproductive um, constraints, the, mm-hmm. the bobcats just have some some real basic advantages as far as uh, persisting. You yeah. know, and I I will say, they're they face. One of the biggest threats, really the biggest imminent threat to ocelots is getting hit by cars once they try to move from area to area. And I think bobcats face the same things. We get calls constantly, I would say minimum twice a month, more likely five, six times a month of a reported dead ocelot in the road, which turns out to be a bobcat, which is you know, fortunate in terms of the ocelot being so rare, but horrible Mm -hmm. to see these beautiful bobcats, you know, getting, getting hit by cars at an, I would say an alarming rate. Sure. Sure. 
Um, well, tell us a little bit about the estimated Texas population. I know that uh, they're on the refuge. You guys have an idea of how many are out there. And then you all also work with private landowners. So when you take all that into consideration, how many ocelots are we talking about living in Texas today? Okay, so you'll see, you can see um, different, you know, reports where they'll say fewer than 100 or fewer than 80. Mm-hmm. Between private lands and public lands and reports we get from researchers, um, we're looking at roughly 50 individual ocelots that we can identify. Each of their coat patterns is kind of unique, like a human fingerprint. Mm -hmm. So there's about 50 out there where we know, okay, rock solid, these are identified individuals. There are pockets of habitat that are... um, that we haven't been able necessarily to get to. Not every landowner is (laughs) super fired up about having the feds come on their land. We understand that. Um, We we so encourage people to take an interest in conservation. And usually, you know, the management you would do for ocelot habitat would benefit so many other species that you'd be, you know, helping yourself out if you're a hunter or if you just like, you know, a, a, a biodiverse, landscape um but regardless there's some area that we suspect could have ocelots that we haven't been able to really census so Mm -hmm. above 50 we're really talking about a very um i wouldn't say very educated guess an educated guess using very specific habitat criteria and distribution criteria to try to make that estimate okay okay Good insight there. Um, let's talk about how you guys monitor and keep tabs on them. I know trail cameras are a big part of that. Huge, uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And then uh, also talk about the trapping that you guys do, because I know you mentioned when we were talking off the air earlier this week, you said, well, we're going to be doing some trapping, so if we catch a, an ocelot, uh, we're probably going to have to reschedule the interview. So obviously you yeah, didn't yeah. catch one this week. No, but we actually caught a bobcat yesterday, so that was fun <laughs> and exciting. She was a nice three-year-old female who looked like maybe she'd had a litter at some point, so that's um, that's good. Normally, we really are only trapping for ocelots. You know, that's sort of our charge as far as you know, an agency that monitors threatened and uh, that monitors threatened and endangered species, but. We also have a couple of road development projects going on right next to the refuge, and um, they're installing for the first time ever wildlife underpasses uh-huh. to try to reduce this vehicle mortality threat to ocelots. But because ocelot numbers are so low, if we only looked at you know, are ocelots going to use these crossings? It's it's in construction now. So we've done like a pre-construction monitoring phase now is during construction and we'll do post-construction. If we limited ourselves to ocelots, we would probably have so little data that it would be hard to feel um, really solid in making conclusions about how effective the crossings are in a short time. Mm -hmm. So we've also been collaring bobcats with that project because even though, like I said, you know, there are some differences in their Oh, so you're, you collar these, you're collaring these cats to see if they're going to yeah, use these Yeah, so crossings. we're collaring along this roadway only. We're also collaring bobcats to use as sort of a proxy species to say, you know, okay, we put in eight wildlife crossings um, in the year since they were installed. 
we've seen, you know, two ocelots go under and we've seen 40 bobcats. So, Mm -hmm. you know, we know cats, there are certain things cats will have in common across species no matter what, right? They don't want to be super exposed. If they're going to travel, um, you know, if you gave them a choice to go on an overpass or an underpass, they'll probably pick the underpass, like that kind of stuff. So for that project alone, we're also trapping and collaring bobcats. Otherwise, it's it's just ocelots that we put collars on. Mm-hmm. Um, and then camera-wise, we have cameras distributed all over the refuge and then also on some private lands. I don't have the numbers, like, handy right at this minute, but I would say at any given time, we're probably running 80 to 100 cameras throughout Willacy and Cameron counties, um, which is a lot of which is a lot of photo sorting. Any of any of your listeners who do trail cams know. Oh my gosh! Yeah. Um, you could get two thousand pictures of the most uninspiring blade of grass you ever saw on one camera. Yeah, so, and then you're talking about times yeah. eighty. Wow. Okay, right, but when you right. do see that ocelot, it's a lot like for our listeners seeing that big buck for the first time that you didn't know was oh, out my, there. Are you kidding me? It's. I mean, it's. Here's what I'll say. Number one, it's just great to see an ocelot because they're so elusive and there's a part of me at least that likes to know they're out there. You know, I might not be seeing them, but I know they're roaming around. You know, there's actually one of our cameras is relatively near my residence and an ocelot will show up periodically. I just like to think that they're, you know, like, okay, maybe right now one is walking behind my house kind of thing. Um, And then, so there's sort of just the I mean, cheesy as it is, the joy of knowing that they're out there. Then we're also happy when we see our known ocelots, you know, kind of in their ranges, looking healthy, looking like they're doing okay, you know, so we know, okay, there's some stability there. And then I think probably most comparable for your listeners to the, you know, seeing that big buck for the first time and, and kind of having your mind blown that, that, you know, that you got the picture is for us when we see a new cat that we, for whatever reason, you know, had not detected up to that point. Sure. And we've had cats who just based on us kind of doing, doing some, some, I don't know, reasoned logical thinking who we know were born on Laguna and, you know, grew up here. And the first time we happened to see them on camera, they were already like a year, year and a half old, mm-hmm. you know, or, or we'll get one in a trap that's almost two. And we think, where have you been for three years? <laughs> yeah. But it also makes us so hopeful that they are there. They are reproducing. So, you know, seeing a new kitten um, is like the, especially cherry on top of that scenario. Oh, I'm sure that, you know, for you, that's where all the hard work comes to fruition. And, uh, Hillary, we've got some exciting news to talk about regarding ocelot reproduction. Uh, but we do need to take a quick break. So are you cool to stick around for a few more minutes? Absolutely. I look forward to it. Thank you. Perfect. And that segment, by the way, brought to you by Dallas Safari Club, the worldwide leader in big game conservation. I want to thank everybody who came out to our convention last weekend Adventure 2017 was our biggest and best show ever. I believe uh, the final numbers aren't in, but over 50,000 people came out uh, and celebrated this one-of-a-kind event with exhibitors from all over the globe. Uh, It was great to see old friends, uh, meet new friends, 
a lot of you introduced yourselves, and hey, we had a heck of a good time trading hunting stories. Uh, anyway, we'd love for you to get plugged in with Dallas Safari Club. It's a great organization, as I mentioned, and uh, you can find out everything you need to know by visiting us at biggame.org. All right, y'all don't go anywhere. We will be right back with more Ocelot Conversation. It's all about conservation, and it's coming at you next right here on USC's Lone Star Outdoors Show. We all love fishing, but private water fishing makes the experience even more enjoyable. Private means private, and when you reserve one of over 50 private lakes, that means you're the only one on the water. Lakes are stocked and professionally managed to grow big bass, and most have boats on site at no charge. You'll catch bigger numbers and bigger fish than on public water. Silence, solitude, and no crowds. It's a great way to introduce kids and grandkids into the outdoors. Visit privatewaterfishing.com to become a member today. Do you have a hog problem at your ranch or deer lease? We have the solution. The System Hog Trap comes in two sizes, 17-foot and 30-foot diameter traps. After you trap the hogs, take the top section off the trap and use it for another feeder site to keep the hogs away from the feeder. The System is both a trap and a deer food plot fence. That way you don't waste your money on just a hog trap. Call 940-391-3669 or visit www.goinfencing.com. That's goinfencing.com. Hey, North Texas sports fans. This is Brian Spagnola, general manager of Texas Motor Cars in Addison. My family's been in the car business for over 50 years, and I want to show you the difference in buying from a family-owned and operated business. TexasMotorCars.com is an awesome website that lets you do virtually all of your shopping online. We have a professional photographer that takes amazing photos, and we give you all the information that you'll need up front. You can even find out how much we will give you for your trade-in before you ever come in. I take pride in the fact you can come in, choose a car, and be out in less than an hour. We have financing rates starting at 1.79% on pre-owned vehicles and can help almost anybody. Please do yourself a favor. If you're in the market for a pre-owned vehicle of any kind, give us a shot. Let me show you how easy buying a vehicle should be. Visit TexasMotorCars.com or come visit our 20,000-square-foot indoor showroom in Addison. Again, visit TexasMotorCars.com or call us at 1-888-9-TX-MOTORS. Hey, folks, this is Zane Williams. Thank you for listening to the Lone Star Outdoors show. Good reason to cry. I don't have a heart ever since she left me. one from our good buddy Zane Williams. I don't have the heart bringing us back on Dallas Safari Club's Lone Star Outdoors Show, brought to you by Lone Star Beer and Hoff Power Players. Cable Smith here with you. Thanks for tuning in as we are talking a little South Texas ocelot conservation here today uh, because I truly do believe that every hunter and angler out there are at the heart of things, a conservationist. Yes, we love the thrill of the hunt. We love taking that big buck or that giant black bear or, you know, catching that 25-inch rainbow trout. Whatever the case, it's truly all about conservation at the end of the day because if we don't pay for it, who's going to? Anti-hunters? PETA? The Humane Society? (laughs) Give me a break. 
All they do is raise money to fight hunting. They don't put anything back into conservation. So pat yourself on the back. Keep doing what you're doing because you're doing the right thing. Every one of you listening today. Um, Okay. This segment of the show is proudly brought to you by the Stillwaters Ranch in Llano, Texas. Visit stillwatersranch.com to book your next trophy whitetail hunt. And uh, tell my buddy Clayton Leverett that you heard about him right here on the Lone Star Outdoors show. Uh, Let's go ahead now and jump back into things with Hillary Swartz. She's the uh, wildlife biologist in charge of ocelot conservation and recovery down at the Laguna Atascosa Wildlife Refuge in South Texas. Hillary, uh, thanks for sticking around through the break. Now, we had some very exciting news come out of the refuge about two weeks or so ago, and it's the first time that this has happened in over 20 or so years. So I'm going to turn it over to you now and let you talk about this uh, very exciting and encouraging discovery related to ocelot conservation and uh, this remnant population that still exists in South Texas. In the past, researchers here with Fish and Wildlife had found den sites, um, but due to technological advances, staff turnover, a million different, a million different things, there hadn't been um, a den located on Laguna in nearly 20 years. And I don't think that was a reflection of the cats not denning because we were obviously seeing new kittens on camera. But just to try to understand better the um, the circumstances surrounding reproduction, mm-hmm. we basically were able to get a GPS collar on a reproductive female for pretty much the first time. The, the males are more likely to go into traps. The females get more wary. Um, so we were able to monitor her movements and we kept seeing her location go back to the same exact spot. And what we might see in a, in a male or a non-pregnant female is there may be a spot, you know, on Monday during the day, right? It's hot. They're not going to move during the day. So they plunk themselves down somewhere and that's where they are that day. And then Tuesday, you know, they've gone out for their night of foraging and, you know, maybe mating if they're lucky, getting water, patrolling their home range. And they go and basically pass out, you know, somewhere else, not necessarily in the same spot as the day before, but still within their home range. So when we're looking for denning behavior, we're looking for those daytime kind of um, nap spots or sleep spots or rest spots to be on top of each other rather than kind of loosely distributed in the home range. And sure enough, we saw that pattern emerging with this female. And so we, we kind of held back for a little bit because the last thing we would want to do is in the interest of quote unquote, saving the ocelots would be to put them in any jeopardy. So we waited a few weeks. And in fact, during that time, um, the mama moved her den site, which is, quite common they may have uh you know have a litter keep them in the same spot for two weeks three weeks then move them to a new spot for two to three weeks and do that several times both an anti-predator um behavior right so keep you know keep moving so that so the coyotes and the and the bobcats don't find your baby Mm -hmm. and then also 
to prevent any kind of ectoparasite buildup, fleas, ticks, what have you, in the den site. So once the um, once we could see her location, the mom's location data moving to that second den site, about three weeks had passed, and we thought, okay, we'll go check it out. And sure enough, I mean, I, you know, even the even the toughest of your listeners would probably have melted at seeing this little bitty. 400 grams, so that's like four-fifths of a pound, little boy kitten tucked right next to the brush in some grass. Um, And, man, fierce, so fierce, so mad at us. (laughs) Little bitty tiny hissing and bearing his miniature canines and, um, you know, obviously not happy to have us there. The mom was not around at the moment. We've been monitoring for her. And we did as quick as we could a little health check on him, weighed him, sexed him, um, took a couple of hair samples for DNA, which is what he was particularly uh, unenthusiastic about that. But it's quick and, and then it's done. Um, and then we put him back exactly where we found him, you know, removed all evidence of us being there. And sure enough, some hours later, the mama returned to the spot and they kept that den spot for, I want to say, at least four days to a week and then she moved to a third den spot so it was it was nice for us to see as well that we hadn't disturbed her behavior or their behavior sure you know yeah and i didn't know like you hear as a kid don't touch baby birds moms are gonna yeah that is that's baloney that's a mythology with with animals you know if it's i mean you know if you have a kid and your kid comes back smelling like i don't know the neighbor's perfume or something you're not going to give up on your kid right, right. <laughs> you know yeah there's a lot of we're just dispelling all kinds of myths here on the lone star outdoors yeah. show yeah awesome. yeah so they're you know their investment is huge they're not going to walk away you know they might I, I mean i could easily foresee that she got there and she you know smelled something rotten in denmark and sniffed around and looked around and made sure the area was clear. That wouldn't surprise me mm-hmm. at all. But, but she stayed there for more days. So. Her baby. Exactly. Yeah. So that was a really good sign. Yeah. Like we didn't, she didn't get there, sniff us, pick up the baby and run. Mm-hmm. She just, you know, kept, kept going. So, yeah. um, it was phenomenal. I mean, it was just, you know, obviously it's cute as a button, but then also just the glee at having this technology really pay off. I mean, how many people? It ain't cheap, you know. <laughs> how many people, Hillary, can say that they've held a wild baby ocelot in the palm of their hand? Not very many. So that's I pretty think cool. Not very many. Yeah. So for me, for me personally, are you kidding me? I was like over the moon, and of course, <laughs> I'm like calling my family and telling them, and they're excited for me because they know it's exciting for me. Yeah. But yeah. you know, in the same way, you know, one of them could call me with news. Oh, I made this big sale, and I would be like, "That's great," but. Mm-hmm. You know, it, you know, each people has each person has their thing, and for me, that was a uh, a never forget kind of experience. Oh, I'm sure, I'm sure. Well, we are almost out of time. A couple more things, though. Um, this population is it holding steady, increasing, decreasing? You know, uh, long. You know, what does your data tell us here? As yeah. Far as that trend? So, so that's uh, that's probably a tough question for a few reasons. I don't want to get too deep into it. Number one is, again, like I said, there's inaccessible areas sure. that we really just have, have pretty much no information on that could 
tilt the scale one way or the other as far as, wow, they look like they're doing great or it looks like their numbers are going down. Um, I mean, over time, this population has been declining. Hmm. Since I've been here, I've seen the known number of Laguna ocelots flip-flop between 11 and 16, which you don't have to be a statistical whiz to know that it's pretty hard to tell 11 and 16 apart as far as how healthy is your population doing, right? I mean, those are tiny numbers no matter what you do. Inbreeding is a huge concern for us, that kind of thing. On the other hand, what what brings me a lot of optimism is, like I said, we know the cats are reproducing. We're seeing moms with their kittens. We found this den. All of that is fantastic for us. The way I think of it is, you know, the ocelots are doing their job. They're making more ocelots. What we need to be doing in fish and wildlife is providing them the room to thrive. So that means um, acquiring and creating habitat for them, either restoring farmlands that willing sellers, you know, they're, they're no longer interested in farming. And so um, we, we buy that land if we have funding to do so. So working on habitat increase working on reducing vehicle collisions. So these underpasses are like, I think they're, for me, they're a turning point as far as um, not having these cats to sort of go towards sudden death if they if they start to move around on the landscape. Between last, what was that? I think it was June through April of 2000. 15 to 16, 11 month period, we lost seven ocelots. I mean, when you're talking about a population that's maybe 80, maybe 100, that's nearly 10% of your population. Oh, yeah. I'm sure every time they're like, please be a bobcat, please be a bobcat. Well, and I hate to do that too. I mean, that makes me feel terrible. Oh, who cares? We got bobcats coming out of our ears. It's okay. I know, but they're fabulous too. I want want, to. That's the California coming out in you. We're not going to hold that against you. It's okay. 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 But, but. Think about how many rats you'd have swimming around your house. Oh, I know. I love bobcats. Just, I like to hunt them, and I like to look at them when I'm sitting in the deer stand. They're great. They're awesome animals. And, yeah. and, and that's why, honestly, that's why I called you, because, you know, yeah. I'm a conservationist, and, and uh-huh. the ocelot's such a cool animal. And I want to tell you this as we wrap things up here. Um, I've actually had a 13-year-old um, Indian in the Amazon rainforest hand me an ocelot pelt. It was his prized possession. They And this tribe... Um, you become a man once you go into the jungle and spend three or four days uh-huh. in the jungle and hunt and kill something, bring it back to the village. And his was an ocelot. And I had given this kid a soccer ball. You know, soccer is Brazil's like huge, yeah. right, 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 right. And uh, and our boat was leaving. Um, they had done some. We'd done some medical work and evangelical uh-huh. stuff. And basically, I just played soccer with the kids and whatnot. <laughs> so it was fun That's for the me. Best we went, ambassadorship yeah. you can do. Yeah, and uh, and I'd given him a new soccer ball, which was something he'd never had in his life. And here he is. We're about to leave. The boat's blown away, and he paddles up in a dugout canoe and hands me this ocelot pelt. And I won't tell you whether or not I smuggle it back into the U.S. or not. Um, I just we'll just leave it at that. But that was uh, one of the coolest gifts that you know someone has ever tried to give me, and it was the most important thing in his life. And uh, yeah, yeah, it was pretty cool. Well, I will say that hopefully you didn't smuggle it in for just for your listeners' knowledge. <laughs> That's definitely highly illegal. Oh yeah, I know. I can't uh, confirm or deny it. So it's but. Uh, um, yeah. But, you know, they're beautiful cats, and I'll tell you, their pelts look the prettiest when they're on them. I yeah. know that's a California answer, but that's when okay. you one out there, it, you're convinced. I can yeah. tell oh, you. Oh, I did want to ask you this as we wrap up. 
if uh-huh. someone sees one, and I'm sure you get a million reported sightings that end up being mm-hmm. bobcats, but if someone's down in that area of South Texas uh, and they see one, what's the what should they do? Call, give you a call, or so, yeah, the best the, the the best thing they can do is um, if they can just go online, go to the Laguna Atascosa National Wildlife Refuge webpage, and there's a link that says if you see an ocelot, and that'll take you through the process. You can give me a call. We keep records of all that. And, you know, I don't mind getting a million calls a week, whether they're off-loss or not. For me, it's great because we can't the eyes everywhere, but it's even more great because it means those people care. And that's what we need is, is that, the, you know, the people who are surrounded by these resources to be interested in them. Mm-hmm. But every time I get a phone call, even if it turns out to be some poor squashed raccoon by the side of the road i'm thinking to myself this is a person who called in because they saw something and it was interesting to them and that like i'll i'll wrap my head around that anytime i'm happy with that no doubt no doubt well hey we appreciate everything you're doing to uh to help save this endangered uh, species of ocelots in in south texas um big fans of laguna atascosa wildlife refuge and uh, I look forward to uh, coming down there and, and uh, seeing what all you got. Maybe, uh, you know, seeing a little more hands-on what exactly you guys do. Yeah, if you, if you could make it down here, I'd love to be able to show you around, show you what we do. and um, We'll go check 80 trail cameras together. <laughs> <laughs> I'll give you a map and you can report back. All right, sounds good. Sounds good. So, well, Hillary, we, we appreciate it. I just want to say really quickly, too, um, to be able to reach your audience is so cool for us because I think it's true sometimes hunters don't realize that that they're appreciated in the conservation community, and it's hard for us to sometimes get there. So um, for me, it's a great honor cable that you would have this topic, you know, as a teacher and that you would kind of... Let us try to tell people how great these cats are. Awesome. Well, hey, it's been my pleasure. It truly has been. And uh, thank you so much for your time. All right. Thank you so much. And have a wonderful 2017. All right. There she goes. Hillary Swartz, wildlife biologist from the Laguna Atascosa Wildlife Refuge. Uh, Awesome stuff there from a conservation standpoint. Here are these beautiful, predatory little cats. And, I mean, the resiliency that they've displayed just hanging on and hanging on uh it's mind-boggling so uh, we applaud not only the ocelot but uh, the conservation effort uh, by the u.s fish and wildlife service on that front and y'all know uh, generally speaking i've had a lot of issues with the uh, u.s fish and wildlife service uh, over the past couple years director dan ash can't wait till trump kicks his butt to the curb because that guy's uh he doesn't have the interest of hunters at heart that's for damn sure so i'm not going to shed a tear when it's time for him to go uh, that segment, by the way, brought to you by STI Guns. And uh, just looking at the clock here, unfortunately, we are flat out of time. Actually, we've gone over. Uh, so we've got to go. Got to get out of here. Thanks to Hillary as well as our uh, other guest today, Peter Breeden from the Beaver's Bend Fly Shop, as well as Alan Kane, our Whitetail Program Leader from Texas Parks and Wildlife. We'll do it again, same time, same place next week. Thanks to all of our sponsors for making this show possible. Thanks to you, the listener, for being a part of DSC's Lone Star Outdoors show. Until next time, I'm Cable Smith saying, shoot straight and have a great week in the outdoors. I wish that I was a chunk of coal Way down deep in the belly of my soul 
That sparkle and that shine I might be a diamond in my own sweet time And I wish I was a chunk of coal 